would invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, and specifically looking now at Genesis chapter 46. We will finish up this evening Genesis 46, and we'll actually get started on Genesis 47. So we are almost at the end of the book of Genesis, but uh, certainly not at the end of the Bible. There is still much, much to learn during our uh, pilgrim sojourn here on earth. Uh, But we uh, will hopefully learn from the example now of uh, Jacob and what the Lord was doing in his family in bringing them to Egypt. And also learn perhaps a little from the way that Jacob responded uh, to the grace of God how he saw it, and how perhaps to a certain extent he didn't quite see it. But let's, uh, before we, uh, let me leave it cryptically there, and let's go before the Lord and ask for his help in understanding the word. God, our gracious Father, we do now ask, Lord, that you would tonight be the light of our minds. I pray particularly that you would help me to divide your word aright. Let me not go astray in any direction that would carry us away from the king's highway, away from the truth of your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that we are to sit under these things, not over them in judgment. Remind us, O Lord, to be listening to this word as it was meant to be, as a word given to us that is true in every age and time and and given for all of your people. This was specifically meant to instruct and guide us, to tell us about your nature and your plans for the world. Help us then, O Lord, to listen. If we were being spoken to by an earthly sovereign who was delivering a message to us directly, we would be very attentive. But we are listening to the words of the sovereign of the universe. Help us to remember that and therefore to esteem these words more highly than any others. Oh, Lord, please be with us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 46, and I'm going to be reading from verse 28 through to 4710. Remind you, this is the word of the Lord. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 60 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Then he sent to Judah before him, to Joseph, to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, 
Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my flock. Then Joseph brought, before, uh, brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, one of the things that I want you to note as we, uh, we start talking about these verses is the change in leadership that's occurred amongst the family. And it's, uh, it's subtle. It's not very obvious. But Judah is now being given preeminence amongst the brothers. I hope you notice that. It's uh, Judah who led them out of uh, Canaan and into Egypt. His father had specifically appointed him to do that. And this is interesting because Judah, of course, is not the firstborn. The firstborn is Reuben. Uh, Judah is actually the fourthborn son of Jacob, one of the sons of Leah. Judah has gone from being a bad example, somebody who was up to all sorts of no good amongst the Canaanites, to somebody who is now a spokesman and a leader among his brothers. We see a, a massive turnaround in this man, the kind of turnaround that, uh, that God can do in the heart of an individual. He, uh, we remember this is the man who pled with his father to go to Egypt, to allow them to go to Egypt and to even take Benjamin with them. And he was successful in persuading his father about that. And then later on, after Benjamin, of course, had been set up because Joseph wanted to keep him in Egypt, he pled with Joseph eloquently for the release of Benjamin. And now his father nominates him to, to lead the entire family to Joseph and to speak first for them. Now, not to give away too many spoilers, uh, but this will not surprise you, therefore, when, uh, or it shouldn't surprise you, when um, as Jacob is dying, and you had to know that that was coming in just a little while, uh, as he is dying in Egypt, his father is going to speak of the scepter as dwelling with the house of Judah. The scepter, of course, is a sign of rule, a sign of kingship. Kings had scepters. And it's also a prefiguring, obviously, of the coming of Christ. He'll speak specifically saying the scepter will not pass from Judah until Shiloh comes, until Shiloh being peace, uh, literally, but being uh, a way of signifying the Messiah, the coming one. Jacob is going to prophesy that the Messiah is going to come from Judah, and Judah will be the ruling house. So it shouldn't surprise us that Judah is being elevated now amongst the brothers because from Judah would come the lion of the tribe of Judah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the promised seed, the blessing of the nations, the one whom they were all hoping for. And indeed, all of the faithful had been hoping for since Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. That man will come from the tribe of Judah. 
So Judah leads the people to Goshen, and then there's this, this beautiful picture of Joseph meeting his father after 22 years of separation. It has been 22 years since Joseph was sold into slavery. He had been separated from his beloved father, and his father had lost the son whom he put so much hope in. For many years, he had thought he was dead. And one of the wonderful things, though, that we see here is his respect. That is Joseph's respect for his father Jacob, or Israel, as he is. Uh, it's interesting how Genesis goes back and forth uh, between those two titles that, was, uh, that were given to him. He shows his respect for his father Israel because uh, unlike the brothers who had to come to him showing his preeminence as the prime minister in Egypt, notice this, Joseph goes to his father and he falls upon his neck. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of weeping on necks. Apparently the neck was the place to weep back in, uh, in Genesis at this point in time, but he weeps on his neck a good while. This is longer than he spent with even his brother Benjamin because he loves his father so much and their division has been so hard upon him. Um, and I, I would encourage you to note this. Uh, there is a respect shown here to our parents that we should emulate, a respect born out of what should be obviously their status in our lives, the ones who brought us into life, but also because of our love for them. Now, we shouldn't necessarily, although we should love them for who they are, and hopefully we will, we should love them because of who they are and that God gave them to us to be the ones who raised us from childhood. They may not have been perfect, but yet they are still worthy of our honor and respect. We are supposed to honor all who are over us, but our parents in particular, that's uh, set out in the, uh, the fifth commandment, as a matter of fact. We are to be a people who are constant in our devotion, not just to God, but to the ones whom he has placed over us. And as uh, Charlie said, to be, um, that is Elder King, I'm sorry, I should be more respectful to the ones who are set over me. Uh, but we should be uh, very zealous to be praying for them as well. And I hope you do pray for your parents. You know, pray for them as if they're still living. And I hope you have shown your respect to them as much as you can in the way that you speak, in the way that you act. And it is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing to see and something that we are not seeing too much of. It is possible, of course, for us to lose our respect for our parents and to feel uh, poorly about them. Uh, I'm reminded of a, of a story that was told to me by a pastor, um, and it affected him deeply. It was a, a man that he had known who um, had good God-fearing parents. Uh, <clears throat> I believe they were Pentecostals, but uh, they, they raised him upright. Uh, and he did very, very well. He went into real estate, and he became, uh, incidentally, I'm not talking about Donald Trump here. Um, he became uh, incredibly successful in the, uh, in the town that he dwelt in and was well known as a, as a leader among industry. But as, he, as his position was elevated far beyond where he had come from, he became less and less interested in seeing his parents and spending time with them. And after a while, it became... Uh, all of his dealings with his parents were done by intermediaries. The pastor said that uh, they, there, was a, uh, uh, there was an event, and this man was being honored at this particular event for his, uh, his successes and his contributions to the real estate industry in their particular uh, town. 
And uh, the man was called up and, you know, uh, they said they had a special surprise for him. And they brought in his parents and they wanted to honor them too. And uh, the pastor said, I saw his face for a moment and his entire countenance fell. And there was just this look of disgust that uh, he'd been reminded that he'd come from such common roots, these podunk parents who had been brought in. And uh, before, uh, you know, it, it became obvious, he, of course, he brightened his visage and, you know, greeted them. But afterwards, he wanted to get away from them as quickly as possible. That should not be the case, brothers and sisters. Here we have Joseph, prime minister in Egypt, second in all the land, second only to Pharaoh. And yet, he is not ashamed of his father, not at all. He runs to him, falls upon him, and he loves him. Now, Jacob, of course, had not expected to see Joseph again, but he thought, uh, rather, that he would go down to the grave still mourning his lost son. But now, of course, he says, now I can die happy, having been reunited. I have seen your face, and now I can go and be united with God. Uh, Despite all of the dangers and the difficulties and the afflictions that Jacob has been through, uh, despite the fact that he has lived 130 years uh, on this earth and is now 130 years old, I feel decrepit at the age of 53. I can't even imagine what 130 would feel like. Uh, All of his sons are alive despite all of those dangers and difficulties, and his family is intact. What I want you to see here, brothers and sisters, is the goodness of the Lord in dealing with Jacob. Jacob had lived in a land surrounded by enemies. He had gone to be with his uncle, and his uncle had despitefully used him and tried to defraud him time and again. And yet the Lord had always supported him, kept him safe. And when he had fled with his uh, giant herds to come back to Canaan, and his uncle had pursued him, yet the Lord was still with him and protected him. I mean, just think about this. At this moment in time when he is meeting his son who he thought was dead and his son has now been elevated to the position of second in all of Egypt, most of the world is starving to death. Most of the Mediterranean world, that is, are suffering from a terrible famine. And yet Jacob has enough to eat. His family has enough to eat. And they've been delivered into a place where they will have enough to eat. What more evidence of the goodness of the Lord do you need at that point in time? But does Jacob really see how good the Lord has been to him? I'm sure if you ask Jacob face to face, do you see how the Lord has been good to you? Yes, I see how the Lord has been good to me. But there are some things that in Jacob's attitude, particularly speaking to Pharaoh, uh, we'll discuss them in a moment, that kind of indicate perhaps... Perhaps he's not as as cheerful about (laughs) what the Lord has done for him as perhaps he should be. Now, part of the Lord's plan for his family, obviously, um, and something that had made Jacob's integration into whatever society he was dwelling in uh, difficult, if not impossible, uh, would be the Lord's desire to keep his people separate from the cultures that they were dwelling in. He wanted his people to have a separate worldview. He certainly wanted them to have a separate religion, to be fundamentally different from the people around them. This would make them a particular people. It would also make them what the, uh, the Puritans rightly called a peculiar people, a people who didn't quite fit in, but who were not supposed to fit in. They were supposed to remain within the culture, but separate from that culture. And certain things were built in to make that process of of living separately from the culture around them 
easier in one sense, but harder in another. For instance, we are going to see that the Lord is going to set out for them specific dietary restrictions. He's going to set out for them restrictions about how they, they are allowed to shave and groom themselves. He's going to tell them, for instance, that you are not to get tattoos like the rest of them. And I'm not trying to apply that to the modern age right now, but back then, uh, tattoos were often a sign of idolatry, of pagan worship. Uh, they were not to cut themselves in their various uh, rituals. They were not supposed to eat various things that everybody else around them ate. These were things that set them apart. These were things that made them different from the world around them. And the Lord did that by intention. And here we see a separation being made between them and the Egyptians. Joseph says to his brothers, when you talk to Pharaoh, tell them your shepherds. Tell them specifically, you are nomadic herders. Now, why would you do that? Well, <clears throat> the city dwellers and the farmers detested these nomadic shepherds. They were men who saw land as something that you irrigated and that you made arable and you grew things on it. And having animals stamping all over it, sweeping in and, and sweeping out and eating all of your, uh, your produce, this was not something that was good. And there was just a natural detestation amongst the city dwellers for, for these nomadic herders. Uh, I remember, and this is something that's gone on in time, incidentally, I remember my mother telling me stories uh, about the gypos, that is the gypsies who would come into the area uh, and how they would say, oh, and of course everything at that point would start disappearing from the wash line. You know, and your pony would go wanting and think, well, she wasn't quite that old, but, you know, various items would suddenly begin disappearing. The obvious allegation is that gypsies are thieves. They're no goods. They're vagabonds. You don't want them in the area. The sooner they and their caravans moved on, the better. And in the Middle East, I'm told by missionaries that there is still a, uh, a prejudice against the nomads who uh, live in the area, the Bedou, uh, the Bedouin. Uh, the city dwellers do not like them in the area. They have the, same, uh, they have the same fears. They're going to come in. They're going to steal our stuff. They're going to ruin the area around here. Better that they move on and so on. And so Joseph actually tells his brothers, come in and identify yourself as these detested people. So they won't want anything to do with you. Joseph, in keeping with God's will, makes this point clear to Pharaoh himself. Now his aim is that Pharaoh who loves Joseph, obviously, for, for what he's done for him and the fact that he is obviously God's anointed instrument of revelation, he is hoping that Pharaoh will give him the land of Goshen. And this was prime grazing land. It's, uh, it was called the land of Ramesses. It was to the east of the Nile Delta. It was too far away, really, to be successfully irrigated, but it was a place still that at this time was still getting apparently enough rain for there to be sufficient forage, especially supplemented uh, by the ample grain that they had in their, their treasuries, so there wouldn't be any problem for them to have their flocks and their herds in this particular area. And it was sufficiently far removed from the capital and the center of population for, their, for them to be weird, to be peculiar, to be out by themselves, and yet not to be worried about being stoned to death every day by the Egyptians. 
So when it comes time for them to meet with Pharaoh, they emphasize that. And they, of course, they ask for permission to dwell within the land. This is the ancient version, you might say, of applying for a green card, applying for permanent residency status. And note this, they're not asking to become citizens of Egypt. They are not asking to become Egyptian subjects. They are asking to dwell within the land and to graze their animals. Uh, and this was a big deal. It was a very big deal to allow foreign people to come in. Now, at this point in time, their family is still relatively small. Seventy people in the immediate family are identified as coming in. They would have had giant flocks and herds and many servants at this point in time. Uh, and it's a big deal to allow this many people to come in all at once. There's this fear that Pharaoh uh, would naturally have. Would they take over? Would they give help to their enemies? Would they also be a burden to the Egyptians? Would they be constantly needing help from the Egyptians? And uh, what Joseph wants them to do and what they do uh, do when they speak to Pharaoh is they make it very clear, no, we have our own livestock. We are self-sufficient. We'll take care of ourselves. We just need land to dwell in, a place where we can live. And Pharaoh is more than happy to grant them that. He allows them to come in and to dwell in their midst. Pharaoh grants their request, and he notes how well that Joseph obviously functions as a prime minister, and he expects this expertise to be something found within his family as well. So he asks, if there are competent ones amongst you, your herdsmen, well, then you be herdsmen over, you be the chief herdsman over my flock, because I expect you to do very, very well. It's, it's worth noting that uh, Jews have always dwelt as a peculiar people within the lands that they dwelt in for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they had particular competencies. They were a people who were particularly gifted by God. I don't think that was an accident, and so often they did very, very well. We'll see, as, and I hope you have read through the Bible far enough to reach, for instance, the book of Daniel. There you see Daniel and several of the other Jewish boys who were taken away in exile. They are being elevated to positions of leadership within Nebuchadnezzar's regime. Why? Because they were so gifted by God, so competent. The Lord has placed his hand upon his people in every age. That should be us as well within the land that we dwell in. Now, I'm going to make this point, and I'm going to hit this drum hard. We are not to be simply folded into the culture that we dwell in. We are not simply to become like the pagans that we dwell amongst, but at the same time, brothers and sisters, we should be amongst the best in the land. You and I should be doing everything that we can to be self-sufficient, to add to the culture around us, to be light and salt, to be a blessing within whatever culture we dwell in, and to aim for excellence, to work as unto the Lord and not merely to the culture or to our boss and so on. So Christians, we should be aiming for excellence and we should be aiming not to be simply subsumed by the culture, but to stand out from it, to stand out from it in the way that we are kind, the way that we are loving to others, the way that we worship our Lord, the way that we're devoted to him, and the way that we are very diligent in whatever it is that we do. We are to be peculiar, not just in the sense that we have a different religion from that which is around us. Now, the most interesting, at least, exchange to, to me that takes place here is the one that goes uh, between Jacob and Pharaoh. 
Now, it's very interesting. You have this old man, this old nomad, who's brought into the presence of the leader of Egypt. Okay? This is, he is effectively the, the head of the most important power in the entire Mediterranean world. And Jacob comes in. Uh, here we have the honored patriarch. He is very old. And unlike the Egyptians, the Egyptians used to shave their bodies clean. They, they would have no hair whatsoever. As a matter of fact, the interesting thing was they wore wigs and false beards, uh, believe it or not, as a result. Here is Jacob, and I have no doubt he had one of those patriarch beards, you know. And after 130 years, I imagine you would have to kind of bundle it up in order to, uh, um, uh, to get around. But uh, he is clearly very old, much older than the average Egyptian. And uh, the first thing to notice is that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. This was normally reversed, okay? When you came into the presence of the leader, you would hope that the leader would give you a blessing. But here, Jacob, as the honored patriarch of God, he is the one who blesses Pharaoh. And it's interesting, in terms of status, of course, Pharaoh outranked him in an earthly status. And yet, in terms of reality before the Lord, Jacob far outranked Pharaoh. He was the beloved messenger, the leader of God's covenant people, and therefore he had a status far above that of, of Jacob. I'm, I'm reminded here of the, uh, the confrontations that occurred between John Knox and Queen Mary during uh, her reign. Queen Mary, of course, um, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, had been raised in France, and she was uh, a Roman Catholic. And to put it mildly, she and John Knox, the great Presbyterian reformer in Scotland, did not get along. One of the things that infuriated the living daylights out of her was that when he came into her presence, he did not bow and scrape. Now, he did uh, give her respect as a ruler, but very limited. And he spoke to her what was on his mind and his beliefs as the Lord had given them to him. He did not uh, tell her the things that she wanted to hear. Uh, so, for instance, during one of their con uh, confrontations, just to give you an example of that, she asked whether subjects should have the power to resist princes. And Knox was clear that if princes exceeded their just authority, they should be opposed. It was an act of obedience to resist rulers who opposed the true faith until that they be brought to a more sober mind, he said. As a Tudor monarch, Mary was stunned by the inference that she was subject to her people. Knox magnanimously agreed to tolerate her for the time being, claiming backhandedly to be as well content to live under your grace as Paul was to live under Nero, um, <laughs> which is quite the slight. And they had many such exchanges, but he never forgot who he was under God. And brothers and sisters, I pray that you never forget that as well. Respect, render honor to whom honor is due. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but remember who you are in Christ. You in him are a son and an heir. You're co-heirs with Christ. You are lower than no one on earth. Remember that because of the, the high place that God has exalted you to. So be humble. As the saying goes, bow low before God, but be willing to stand before men. Well, Pharaoh asks his age, and he says, 
that his years were few and evil. I, I can't believe 130 years is few, but when you um, compare him to Abraham, Abraham lived 175 years, and Isaac, his father, had lived 180 years. So they were less than, than his, uh, his forefathers. Uh, and he describes them uh, as evil. Um, Jacob rightly understood his life as a pilgrimage. Uh, his entire life here on earth, and it, not just a pilgrimage in terms of traveling through various lands. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. There I want us to consider what the author of Hebrews had to say when he was speaking to Jews living in a foreign country, a country not their own, and he specifically reminded them of what their forefathers had done, particularly men like Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. And he says, these all died, I'm starting on verse 13 of uh, chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now the desire, they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What the author of Hebrews is explicitly saying, this is something that I'm sure Jacob would have acknowledged as well. They were looking for a heavenly country. They were looking for a place where they would no longer be pilgrims and sojourners, a place where they would have true citizenship, where they would be able to dwell with their true king, the Lord of the universe, the God who had created them. And they were looking to do that, obviously, through faith in his promises. He had promised that he would prepare a place for them. It's one of the greatest promises that Christ left us before he ascended to heaven, isn't it? That he said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not the case, I would have told you. In my father's house, he says, are many mansions. And what he means is there's a lot of space for you. Don't worry. He went and he went specifically to prepare a place for us to dwell in. Um, Jacob knew that, that he was headed towards heaven and his final reward. He also, he says, few, his, his years were few. And that, you know, well, 130 years, few? Well, yes, compared to eternity, it is a brief sojourn. James reminds us when he asks, what is your life? It's a vapor. It's something that arises in the morning like the morning mist and then burns away. We are literally here today and gone tomorrow. And therefore, we ought to be saying in our minds, if the Lord wills, not presuming that we live here, we need to remember that this is like a stay in a hotel. It doesn't go on forever. No matter how long it goes on for, it's not forever. It is also, he says, difficult. But here's where I, I want to, to differ with, with Jacob. I, it, it is perhaps, it is difficult because we live in a fallen world and certainly Jacob had gone through many difficulties in his life. I, I rehearsed some of them. I remember he ended up fleeing to his uncle who ends up uh, you know, being very angry with him because he was fleeing from his brother who was trying to kill him and so on. Some of the reasons that uh, his life was difficult could be traced back to sinful decisions that he made. But nonetheless, his life, yeah, there, was, there were a lot of difficulties. But the Lord was with him every step of the way. And he brought them through them all. 
even when it seemed like the land would rise up after they slaughtered, the men of Shechem would, would rise up and kill them. Yet the Lord protected him and kept him. Now, I want to say this. I, life is difficult, but perhaps not as difficult as we choose to make it or to see it as ourselves. I, you, you may have met the person who you ask them, this is the Christian, how are you doing? <sighs> well, and then suddenly they, 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 they're launched. They list all of the things that are against them, why their lives are hard and unbearable and difficult and terrible. And after a few minutes of listening to this, you have to ask yourself, wait a minute, you're, you're dwelling in America in the 21st century, right? You are not, I just want to make sure that, you know, when you leave church, you don't go back to like Sudan and a wrecked home and neighbors who would gladly, you know, uh, seize all of your property or burn you to death. Or you're, you're not from northern Nigeria or you're not from southern China where you're being persecuted constantly by that. I just want to make sure that's not your state, right? Because often we can act as though every moment of our lives is, is detestable and difficult. And here I'm preaching to myself. Sometimes I, you know, I can, I can act literally like Puddle Glum from the uh, C.S. Lewis series. You remember him? It's a beautiful sunny day. Well, it'll probably rain later. You know, that kind of thing. Well, brothers and sisters, that ought not to be the Christian's perspective. It really ought not to be. It should be the case that we see beyond our circumstances. Now, generally speaking, our circumstances for the puddle glum types, like I can be, are never as bad as we're acting like they are in the first place. Often it is incomprehensible to others that we're, we're so upset with our, our particular situation. Wait, you've got, a, you've got a spouse, you've got a job, you've got a family, you've got food on the table, you have air conditioning in the middle of the summer, um, you're not sleeping under the overpass, you don't have a terminal disease that's got you in constant pain. You know, you go through all of these things that stand for this, you know, that, that are in favor of this person and so on, that they don't seem to see. But... Even if we are suffering, even if our circumstances are bad, even if things are really in an outwardly, uh, worldly sense, even if they are against us, remember that the suffering that we encounter here on earth is light and momentary. That's not me saying that. What does Paul say in Romans 8.18? And if anybody had a right to talk about Christian suffering, it was Paul. This was a man who was inflict, uh, afflicted for his entire ministry, shipwrecked, attacked by animals, beaten savagely multiple times, thrown in jail, <clears throat> all of these things again and again and again. And yet, what does he say in Romans 8.18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Brothers and sisters, we need to have that Pauline ability to look beyond the walls of the prison, to look beyond our circumstances and the things that stand against us to the mountain of blessings that stand in our favor because of what Christ has done. Yes, you will encounter difficulty here on earth for a time, but you're pilgrims, you're sojourners, you're headed for a better country. Read Pilgrim's Progress. Read it again and again and again. 
it's very honest about the fact that yes, there are difficulties, setbacks, even backslidings, mistakes and sins that we commit this particular side of glory and, and affliction and that we do have to pass through Vanity Fair. Yes, absolutely. But where does it end? It ends in the celestial city with rejoicing as the gates are opened. It ends with, well done, O good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's your end as well if you're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who can be against you if God is for you? And if God is against you because you're against him, then it doesn't matter who's for you or how comfortable your position is at Vanity Fair. What I find often, unfortunately, is that one of the things that Christians imbibe from the culture around them is the Vanity Fair attitude, that our happiness should go in keeping with our outward circumstances, with our honors, with our paychecks, with all of these things. What are they? Idols. And they never, ever, ever satisfy. If you are hoping that a person, a job, a situation, a place to live, any of those things is going to be the key to your happiness, I've got news for you. You are always going to be disappointed. The people who have pursued those things to their uttermost, the people like Solomon, at the end, they're dissatisfied. Vanity, emptiness, hebel. It's vapor. It's nothing. It's nothing lasting. And even people, they can't, they can't be the source of your happiness. They'll always let you down eventually because they're people. So are you. You'll let them down. I, I let people down all the time. I live with some of the people that I let down all the time. I, I can't be the source of their happiness. They're going to have to find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I think they have. So they can endure me. And the letdowns that I produce. But brothers and sisters. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You are going to go from discontentment to discontentment. Trying to find satisfaction in things that will never satisfy. Don't let that be the case. And certainly don't live life as a puddle glum. Don't get folded into the society. But at the same time don't see your, your walk through this life as nothing but unalloyed difficulty and sorrow and suffering and so on. May it be that you find joy in the Christian life. May it be that you find joy in simple pleasures that the Lord sends you, good things like fellowship, communion, food, eat and drink to the glory of God, for instance. Don't feel guilty constantly. I see so many Christians who don't seem to be happy unless they're feeling guilty about something. That should not be the case. It's okay to enjoy the things that God has given us in moderation, as long as we don't make them idols. But at the same time, don't find your satisfaction in them. Find them in the one who gave them to you, your creator, and most especially in your redeemer, his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we pray now, Lord, that you would help us not to be subsumed by the culture around us, to be carried away with it. Certainly not, O oh Lord, to think that we can find our satisfaction in any of these things. We know ultimately they are, they're empty, they're vain. But we know, O oh Lord, that there is something that satisfies. There is a support for our souls, a solid rock for our feet, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
So help us to be not like the foolish people who build their houses on sand. And if we listen to the culture and follow it, that's what we'll be doing. Help us instead to hear the word of Christ and then to do it. If we do that, we are told by your son that we will be building our house on solid rock. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that. And help us to look beyond our circumstances, to see all the way clear to the celestial city to the delectable mountains, to the place that we hope to dwell forever. We are looking forward to an eternity that will be free of sin and hardship and sorrow and sickness and death and suffering and all of those things. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember what's at the end of the trip. The journey may be difficult, but 